Good morning. As you can maybe tell by the board behind me, our lesson this morning is going to come from the book of Jeremiah. So I encourage you to go ahead and be taking your Bibles out, opening them up to the book of Jeremiah. As you're doing that, I'd like to pause to say how excited I am for those of you who are visiting with us, uh, especially, um, maybe I'm a little biased, but especially for my family, my mom and dad who are here with us this, this morning. Very thankful for your all's attendance. Very thankful for the members here that bring me so much encouragement, and I hope that uh, that I am able to to return that encouragement as well as we work together here at Lake Street to strive to be pleasing to the Lord. As I've already mentioned, we're going to be studying from the book of Jeremiah, and a little bit of context can sometimes go a long way. The book of Jeremiah, or at least the life of Jeremiah, covers a time that happened near the the year 600 B.C. Certainly there was parts of it that happened uh, prior to that, back up to around 630 B.C., and some things that happened after that, looking down towards 580. Um, but in this time, this period of Jeremiah's life, it was a time of, of great difficulty for the kingdom of Judah. Their, their northern kingdom, a northern uh, border of, of Israel, was, was already defeated. They were taken into Assyrian captivity, and at this point they are... They're really, uh, they're history. And Nebuchadnezzar now has come in and has, has overtaken the Assyrian nation. Um, but Babylon is also threatening now Judah, making their way toward them. And it's in this context that we see what we're going to read in Jeremiah chapter 7. The people of Judah had developed a, a bit of a false trust, one which the Lord condemned through his prophet Jeremiah, and one that I think we would do well to remember today because we can fall into a, a very similar false trust. and We need to try and avoid this. So let's, let's begin by reading verses 1 through 15 of Jeremiah chapter 7. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. But go now to my place which was in Shiloh, where I sent my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust into this place which I gave to you your fa and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all of your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. 
we think of the false trust of Judah, one of the first things that comes to light in this passage, in this section of Scripture, the first seven verses of Jeremiah chapter 7, condemn the people of Judah for their false trust in the temple. Verses 1 and 2, Jeremiah is commissioned to preach in the temple. Calling for repentance is the message he is told to bring. And he brings that message at a time when the city was in great danger of being destroyed by the Babylonian forces. God tells them that if they will repent, they will live. They will live in that place. They will stay there. And in fact, verse 7, he says that they can live there forever. They would simply change. Now you would think with a message like this that you would, you would see some sort of significant response. Nebuchadnezzar has marched down and has, has thoroughly wiped out anyone that faces him. And now his sights are set on Judah. And the message that Jeremiah brings to them is that if they will just change what they're doing, that Nebuchadnezzar is not going to, to be a threat to them. They can be God's people and they can live in this land as faithful followers of God, but they needed to change some things in their lives. You would think a message like that would cause people to think. But in actuality, they're going to do just the opposite. They continue doing the things that they do and it's only going to be some 25 years later that they're going to literally open the doors to the city to Nebuchadnezzar. The king is going to waltz out and be taken off into captivity and many more are going to be taken along with him. This would include a young man named Ezekiel who's going to go and have to preach a very similar message to them while they're in captivity. You see, their trust was in the fact that the temple was in Jerusalem. They had an attitude that said, we're safe. We have nothing to worry about. Because the Lord will not allow His temple to be destroyed. And we live within the city of His temple. We're the people of the city of His temple. So therefore, we're going to be fine. We don't have anything to worry about. They implied this by three times making the statement, the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord are these. They kind of had this attitude that said, God might have allowed Israel to be destroyed. But, but us? Surely not. We live within Jerusalem. The temple of God is here. The presence of God is here. That makes us special. But the Lord required more than rituals involving temple worship and outward piety. Repentance and service was to be done, and it was to be done thoroughly. As the beginning of verse 5, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 5 tells us. If you're reading from the New American Standard, it says that we are, they were to do it truly. They were to have true repentance, true service to God. In fact, later on, the latter part of verse 5 verse 6 says that it's going to affect their individual and daily dealings with people. It wasn't just what they were coming to do at the temple. It was the lives that they lived. If they would have true service, then they would be spared from Babylonian captivity. But not only were they trusting falsely in the temple, they were trusting falsely in their own lies, as verses 8-11 through 11 goes on to tell us. A man by the name of Alan Alexander Milne 
A.A. A. Milne. He was the author who wrote a book about a teddy bear and his owner named Christopher Robin. You might remember these books. They were titled Winnie the Pooh. Alan Alexander Milne once said, It is easier to believe a lie that one has heard a thousand times than to believe a fact that no one has heard before. Now whether you are the one telling it, or whether you are the one hearing it, a lie repeated over and over and over again begins to have more credibility than the truth scarcely spoken. And this certainly fits the bill with Judah. The people of Judah had begun placing trust in something that was false. Jeremiah was here telling them the truth, but but the lies that they had heard over and over again, you're safe because of the temple, because of what you do at the temple. Those lies covered up the fact that they were blatantly transgressing the law. Verse 9 depicts some of the things that they were doing. Stealing, murdering, committing adultery, and yet they would come to the, to the temple and believe somehow, somehow this, this excused the conduct that they had. But verse 11, God says, I see right through your hypocrisy, Judah. Verse 11 says that to them, they were, to, to God, they were as glass. They weren't hiding nothing. Nothing was hidden from his sight. He saw the things that they were doing. And he certainly wasn't pleased. Their response is still, but we're okay. Because we live within the city that houses the temple, the presence of God. How does God respond to such a foolish thought? Verse 12, his response is, why don't you take a trip to Shiloh? Why don't you go to Shiloh and see what happened there? Why would God desire them to take such a, a trip down memory lane at this time? Well, to understand that, let's flip over to Joshua for just a moment. In Joshua chapter 18, in verse 1, we read a little bit about Shiloh. It says here in Joshua 18 verse 1, Now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. You see, Shiloh was where the temple, or excuse me, the tabernacle was first set up. These people were convinced we are safe because of the temple. God's message to them is, this wasn't the first place of my, my physical address, if you will, on earth. See, Joshua built the tabernacle, which housed the presence of God. He instructed the sons of Israel to build it there, not because they got to Shiloh and went, this looks like a great place to build the tabernacle. This is going to be a lovely place to place a tent. But rather, as Deuteronomy 12 verse 11 tells us, that was where the Lord had commanded them to build it. It says there that it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God will choose. God had decided, this is where you shall bring your sacrifices. In fact, he had decided on such a place that had a name which meant rest. Certainly, that was to represent a rest from war. 
because they would subdue the land and they would belong to them. It was a rest from captivity. They no longer were in Egypt. They weren't a slave race, but their very own nation, a nation belonging to God. But also a rest from lawlessness. They had been given a law, and now God would dwell amidst them. This would be his physical house. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant would be. But 1 Samuel 4 tells us this is also where the Ark of the Covenant would be captured, or maybe better yet, stolen from. You see in verses 10 through 11 of 1 Samuel 4, that's exactly what happens. The Ark of the Covenant is taken. But to begin to understand that, let's read a little bit further back. Let's start in verse 1, which says, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. We see the Israelites drawing up to battle against the Philistines. They're, they're arch rivals, if you will. And this is seemingly their nemesis and will be for quite some time. Verse 2 tells us that the Philistines put themselves into a battle array against Israel. And they went to fight together. And Israel is defeated by the Philistines, not by, by just a, a close margin. They were killed, defeated by having 4,000 of their men killed in the army of the field. I don't care if you have an army of a million men. When you lose 4,000 people in battle, that seems pretty significant. That's something people are going to take note of. And in fact, the people do take note. They run back to their camp. And the elders of the Israel, somebody in Israel had enough wisdom to make this statement. They said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Somebody recognized that they lost this battle because the presence of God was not with them. But listen to what they say next. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us. And when it comes amongst us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. Here is the attitude of Israel at this time. Enemies are at the gates. They're right outside our camp. We've already been defeated. And we were defeated because God's presence wasn't with us. The Lord defeated us today. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to go get him, and we're going to bring him to the battle. Maybe somebody forgot to wake God up for this fight. Let's go take him and bring him to the battle, and now we'll have God's presence. Now we'll win. Well, that's, that's exactly what they did, so let's read on a little bit. In verse 5, it says, The ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp. They did what they said they were going to do, and all of Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. You could literally... Feel the excitement in the air as the, as the Ark of the Covenant came into the camp and <laughs> the earth is shaking from their shouting. They are so certain. We are going to win because we have went and got the Ark of the Covenant. His presence is among us. And it was such a, it was such a phenomenon that was going on. Them, them shaking the earth and they're shouting that the Philistines were actually affected by this. If you read in verse 7, it says they were afraid because they said God is coming to the camp. There's no other reason for this. 
God has arrived. But then they, they kind of pull themselves together. Verse 9, we've got to be strong. We can't let ourselves become these servants of the Hebrews. We have to, to pull ourselves together. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. And so they fought. Verse 10, and Israel was defeated again. And every man fled to his tent. And there was a very great slaughter. And there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured. And also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is an epic defeat. And not only have the Israelites here had false trust, but they have thoroughly soiled the name of God. Think about how the Philistines must have felt as they marched home from this victory. Carrying the Ark of God with them. The Ark of the Covenant. I guess their God wasn't strong enough to save them. This is the, this is the message to the, to the ungodly around them because of the false trust of Israel at this time. And now here in Jeremiah, the people still have the same False trust. We can just bring God to us. And God is telling Jerusalem, do you not remember what happened in Shiloh? I'm going to do the same thing to you and to the temple because of your failure to heed his prophets. Because of your failure to heed my prophets, excuse me. What happened at Shiloh was going to happen at Jerusalem. They're going to be taken into captivity. They're going to be just like Ephraim, like Israel, who was taken before them. And that's exactly what happens. And even then, when Nebuchadnezzar comes in and captures the people and takes them off to to captivity, because of the temple, they think we're still going to be okay. This is the mess that Ezekiel now has to to work on. Repeating Jeremiah's message. Down by the Chibar River, he's telling them, you guys, the temple is going to be gone. God's presence isn't in the temple anymore. And the people who are left in Jerusalem, they're going to be gone. They're going to be destroyed. And so will you if you don't change your ways. This is the message being preached to the people, the children of Israel. And 1 Corinthians 10 tells us in verses 11 and 12 that we were, we were, this was written down, it was recorded and saved for us. God's dealings with them so that we might learn something from it. Those who don't learn from history or fail to repeat it, we need to, this is written for our admonition, because there's a very real danger before us today of falling away. So what application can we draw from our text in Jeremiah? Perhaps one that is very obvious to me is that they had a false trust in the temple, and we can have a false trust in the church. Could it be that as members of the church which Christ built, we have developed this false trust in it? And could it be that like the Jews who cried out, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these, that there be those who cry out, the church of Christ, the church of Christ, the church of Christ are these. Acting and maybe even believing that membership within the kingdom of God excuses 
sins such as negligence and inactive service. That's an attitude based upon faulty reasoning. We know the church will be saved. And I am a member of the church so that therefore I will be saved. The attitude that says I'm a member so I can get by. But we need to remember that there is a parable that talks about this. In Matthew chapter chapter 13, we read about the parable of the tares. And if you want to turn over to verses 40 through 43 where it is explained, we'll read from there in just a second. But just to, to bring to our memory, this is a parable of a field that was planted with wheat. But the field, the, the enemy of the field owner came and he planted tares. He planted weeds in the field with them. So that whenever they, they started to sprout up, the, the workers walked around they said, well, wait a minute. Here's, here's wheat, but this is a tear. That doesn't belong here. And they went back to the owner and said, what, what are we going to do with these things? What, what, what should we do with the weeds that are growing up amongst the wheat? And the owner said, let them grow. Let them stay together. At harvest time, we will separate them. In verses 40 through 43, we understand what that means. When Jesus tells us, Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, and then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We see that taught in this parable, in the end of days, we might find ourselves living in the kingdom of God, in the church, but facing eviction. See, one may be in the kingdom now, but on the last day cast out of the kingdom. And so salvation is then dependent not on proximity to the kingdom, but on individual allegiance to the kingdom. Not a group association. In fact, in John chapter 15, verse 2, Jesus would again illustrate this when he uses the illustration of a grapevine. And he says, not all the branches connected to the trunk of that vine are going to be left intact. The branches that bear fruit will be pruned so that they bear more fruit. But those that do not bear fruit will be cut off and thrown into the fire. So we need to see that that just because we might be a member of the church, that doesn't excuse us from doing nothing, from being a weed, from being a, a, a dry branch. It also doesn't excuse us from sinful actions like the Jews who disobeyed God and then claimed exemption because of their their sacrifice and service at the temple. Do we live in the world and then think that's okay because we go to church? Do we engage in immorality and worldliness but but then say, I am a faithful member? In doing so, aren't we soiling the name of the Lord just as they did in Shiloh? What we need to see is God has not changed. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament and He demands holy living and He demands it by the grace that He bestows. I want to tell you so many people today want to to talk about God's grace, love to spend time talking about God's grace and I want to suggest to you that I'm one of those people. I love 
to think about God's grace. I'm reading a book right now that's talking about overcoming addiction and sin. It's talking about sins such as gambling and pornography and drug use and things that just latch on to people's soul and, and chain them and snare them so hard to break free. And it's talking about how we overcome that through the grace of God. Because God's grace has the power to transform us. And I want you to know that God's grace is marvelous. And God's grace is wonderful. And it is awesome. But all too often it is also perverted by a world that treats it like it is a fix-all. Like it's just an ointment that you apply and then you don't have to make any real changes in your life. But listen to what Paul has to say to the young preacher, Titus, in chapter 2. He says in verse 11 and 12, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It is available to every soul both on the earth now and in the future to come. We have God's grace opened before us. But notice what it says in verse 12. It says that His grace teaches us something. It teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. It teaches us that we should live soberly and righteously and godly in the present age. You see, so oftentimes we like to treat God's grace like it's just some big blanket. And I'm just going to throw that grace, that, that blanket over my sins, and, and yeah, they'll still be there because I'm still committing them. But it's okay because it's done underneath the blanket of God's grace. Now don't get me wrong, I don't want to swing too far to one side or the other on this. Because there are those that completely disregard God's grace and say that you have to do that that you have to do so much to earn your forgiveness. I'm not talking about earning salvation. That is not possible. But at the same time, we can utterly despise God's grace when we don't recognize that it is taught that is it is there to teach us to be transformed. That's what Hebrews chapter 10 is talking about. And if you if you will, that, that Paul is the author of the Hebrew letter, Paul is going on to say more about what he's told Titus. When he says that the, that the grace of God teaches us to change, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26, he tells us if we don't change, what an attitude we have towards that grace. It says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How of, uh, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of blood, God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and, <clears throat> and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What Paul was telling us in Titus, and what we're learning here in Hebrews, is that yes, God's grace 
covers us. But it's through His grace that we have the power to change. And He expects us to change. And let me tell you, if if we learn the truth about our sins, but we say, you know what, we don't have to change that because God's grace. There's nothing else left for us. No other power that will transform our lives. Brothers and sisters, you will not find it in a self-help book. And you will not find it from some some preacher or guru or some place of authority in your life. You will not find the solution to sin because it is found in God's grace. But it is found when that grace teaches us to be more, to change. And so if we despise His grace, you know what we can expect? We can expect His wrath. Salvation is dependent upon learning from God's grace and is not dependent upon church rituals. Nothing that we can do to earn that. And so maybe if the Lord had something to respond to the foolishness of man who says, I go to church. I'm a member of the church. I do things that you do in church. That makes me safe. You know what God might say to that person? He might say, why don't you, uh, why don't you take a trip to Sardis? Over in Revelation chapter 3. Why don't you learn what happened to them? Verses 1-6, through six, it says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things does he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garment, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Did you notice that the church at Sardis had a living name? They had a name that they were alive. When people talked about Sardis, they said, that's a church that's doing something. But what did God say about it? Because that living name didn't free them from the threat of condemnation. Jesus said, I see your works. And everybody else might say that you're alive, but I tell you, you are dead. But notice in verse 4, He wasn't talking about everybody at that church. There were those who by by individual sanctification, they were setting themselves apart for God. They were noticed by Jesus. But they had not defiled their garments. He said, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. 
those who were doing unrighteousness were not free from this threat of condemnation because of the righteous. And those that were righteous weren't receiving this threat of condemnation because of the unrighteous. There was individual sanctification. There was individual notification. Jesus said, I see you. I see the ones that are following me. And I see the ones that aren't. Church membership wasn't what was going to save the the people, the Christians in Sardis. Maybe he would also say, why don't you take a trip on over to Laodicea? Verses 14 through 22, the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, and therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Negligent, inactive, sinful, and in need of repentance. These are certainly ways that we could describe the church that received that letter. And that attitude was disgusting to the Lord. Verses 14 through 15, he describes them as lukewarm. Now in our our class on Wednesday nights, we've recently discussed the church at Laodicea. When Jesus was saying to them, "Is I would desire you to be of something that provided benefit." Joe Joe described it excellent when he said that things that are cold or things that are hot provide a sensation. Things that are lukewarm, the waters that came into to Laodicea flowed from Heropolis in the north. Or Colossae to the west. The waters from Colossae were cold and were good to drink. And the water from Heropolis was full of, of a mineral content that made it beneficial to the body. It would, it would provide healing for ailments. Both of these waters provide sensation. But the water in Laodicea It wasn't nothing fantastic. It wasn't anything that provided that sensation. And so to the church there, Jesus says, you're like the water in the city. You're lukewarm. I would rather you be something 
that was on fire, that was zealous for these good works. And they were in danger, just like the water that would be spit up. They were in danger of expulsion because of worldliness. You see, like the Jews, whose salvation from destruction depended upon wholehearted service to God, our salvation depends upon complete and faithful obedience to the will of Christ. That's what grace is teaching us. We need to avoid the foolishness of virtue by association. And remember that God has promised to do to us just as He did to Israel if we were not faithful. And so that means we need to examine our own lives. I examine mine and you need to examine yours. And ask, can it be said that we are sanctifying ourselves to the Lord? Am I fully set apart for Him or does He compete with other things for my service? And I need to remember that just showing up a couple times a week, that doesn't ensure salvation. Rather, we need to walk by God's grace. And we need to not think that because we have a proximity to his kingdom, we are any more safe than those who stand outside the gates. If today the Lord returned, how would you be found? Would you be found a fruitful branch? Or would you be found a tear, a weed? We also need to remember his promise that he made to the children of Israel, to Judah. That if they would make the changes, that they would live there forever. If we are faithful to God, if we will set ourselves apart, be holy as He is holy, then we have a promised kingdom of inheritance. That when the Lord comes, to gather up those within his kingdom that are, that are righteous. That are following him. They will be gathered up to dwell with him in the presence of God for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, that should garner a response. Will we turn to him and remain faithful. If there's any way that we can help you with that this morning, I want you to know that we are eager for the opportunity to do so. Maybe you have questions about what is involved with that. That is a wise inquiry to make. And I encourage you to bring those questions to us. Let's sit down and let's look to God's word together. Let's study and see what his word has to say. Maybe you know what you need to do. My question is, why are you waiting? whether it be arise and be baptized or whether it be turn back. Won't you come to the Lord right now as we stand and as we sing?